0: Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, our reading this morning comes to us from a letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians. In 50 to 51 CE, after experiencing an astounding vision described in Acts 16... The Apostle Paul arrived in the Roman province of Philippi in northern Greece, and he founded a church, which most scholars agree was the very first Christian church on European soil. Scholarship remains divided on the question of when Paul wrote his letter to this community, sometime between 54 and 60 CE. Still, most researchers agree that the letter was composed while Paul was imprisoned, And this fact makes the message and tone of Philippians remarkable. The letter is incredibly upbeat and joyful and touches upon major themes of friendship, unity, peace, and the certainty of answered prayer. In our reading this morning, we will hear one of the most celebrated passages in the letter, often called the Christ hymn in verses 6 through 11. The poetic quality of the text marks it that it was probably used in early Christian worship as a creed, a responsive reading, or perhaps even sung as a hymn. The hymn focuses on Christ Jesus and reinforces Paul's call to humility and harmony, which is expressed throughout this wonderful letter. Let us turn now and give our full attention to the words of Paul in his letter to the Philippians from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the spirit, any tender affection or sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at that name, given Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word.
1: If I were to ask you to name some of the world's most famous brand logos or icons, what would make your list? Of course, you could cheat and just look around at your neighbors and probably look at their shoes or their purse or their sweaters and see logos and brands that might give it away. But I don't want you to cheat in church. Pretend actually that you're like a contestant on Family Feud, right? And, it's the bonus round and there's big money on the line. The clock is ticking and a lot of people are counting on you and so far it's not going really well. Um, you were just asked to name a type of food that you can lick and you panicked and unfortunately you said envelope. <laughs> and your whole family over there just gasped and sighed. Even your mother, right? But now you have a chance to redeem yourself with this question. Name A famous brand logo or icon. Does anybody even watch Family Feud anymore, by the way? But still, what did the survey say? You can think of some. The Nike Swoosh, the Golden Arches, Coca-Cola, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Gucci, Tesla, MTV. I don't know what the survey said, actually, but Corporations spend a lot of money, millions of dollars every year, designing logos that we will recognize and associate with certain products or ideas or people. And we see the icon and we immediately know what it means and what it represents. But there's this 2,000 year old icon that has come to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people over the years. And it is made simply of these two intersecting sticks and you find it dangling from necklaces and etched into seminary seminary headstones, cemetery headstones, (laughs) that too, (laughs) emblazoned on hospital buildings and ambulances and anchored into hillsides and of course tattooed on various body parts of humans around the world. And the cross has endured over the centuries like no other icon really has. But not everyone agrees on what the cross actually means. Generally speaking, the cross is a symbol of for the belief system that we call Christianity. Islam is symbolized by the crescent and star, Judaism by the Star of David. Christianity by the cross. And accordingly, if you were to spot a cross on a building like this, you would assume it's probably a Christian church where people gather to learn and to practice uh, the teachings of Jesus and maybe do some Christian-y kinds of things inside like praying and singing and studying scripture and eating a lot of donuts afterwards, right? (laughs) And if you were to spot a a cross around somebody's neck, you would assume that they're a Christian. And they follow the ways and teachings of Jesus. And they too, they do a lot of Christian-y things, like praying and going to church and studying Scripture and not ever swearing or losing their temper, right? (laughs) Because crosses, crosses are everywhere. And because they're everywhere, we assume that they all mean the same thing. We assume that we know what they mean, and they all mean the same thing, but if you ask somebody, especially somebody uh, that, you, that you know, and say, what does a cross mean to you, you will quickly discover that it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. What does a cross mean to you? I was raised Catholic. I, I, every Sunday as a child, I attended mass with my family in a Catholic church in Southern California. I would walk in that space, and sit in the pew, and I could never take my eyes off the striking crucifix that hung from the ceiling over the altar. Nailed to the cross was this near-perfect reproduction of a life-sized body of a man. And his head hung loosely to one side under the weight of a crown of thorns that pierced his forehead, and blood streamed from the puncture marks around his head. And from his hands where the nails went in. From his feet. It came from his side where he was stabbed. And this man was mostly naked except for a small band of sackcloth tied around his waist. And the expression on his face was one of anguish and shock. As if his innocence had been suddenly and irrevocably robbed by some unstoppable, unimaginable, unexplainable force of violence. And the sign above his head tilted slightly betrayed his identity as some kind of failed king or revolutionary. And as a child, I didn't know at all what it meant, really, this life-size depiction of suffering and death by violent means. I only knew that it was both awful and strangely beautiful. It was profoundly disturbing and yet mysteriously moving. It's a poignant reminder, a portrayal of, of real human torment and divine tenderness all at once. What about you? Most of us, even as adults, can't make complete sense of the cross. For some, it maybe symbolizes hope that because the cross is empty, the death didn't have the last word. And for some it symbolizes courage that Jesus faced head on the, the violence of empire and did not back down or run in fear. For some it symbolizes God's love, that God's love is as wide as the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross. And For some it symbolizes God's sharing in our suffering. That because God suffers, God understands our suffering. But for a lot of people, the cross is is a difficult symbol. It's one with which they struggle. Over the centuries, the cross has been co-opted by the KKK, by Christian nationalists, by nationalist socialists, by religious extremists, by so many others that the cross has been, as you would say, weaponized to do great harm in the name of religion. But people, I think, mostly struggle with the cross because they have been told one thing about what it really means. And that one thing is this, that Jesus died for your sins. This is really hard for a lot of people to understand or and accept. This claim that Jesus died for our sins is often referred to as the penal substitution theory or blood atonement theory. According to this theory, Jesus voluntarily submits to God's preordained plan to atone for the sins of the whole world through crucifixion, choosing to take on the punishment that we deserve by dying on a cross, thus satisfying God's demands for justice. Someone, in other words, had to appease God's need for divine justice, and that someone was Jesus. As popular as this theory is and has become over the centuries, especially over the last three or four centuries, you will never, ever once find Jesus in any of his teachings in the Gospels claiming that he came into the world to be sacrificed or to atone for the sins of the world. You simply will not find this. Jesus never said this about himself and if it was God's plan or will, there's no uh, indication that God ever once uh, told Jesus about it. Penal substitution or blood atonement theory it came much later, actually about a thousand years later to be precise. It was the uh, doctrinal brainchild of a theologian by the name of Anselm of Canterbury. At around the year 1100. Now you will find hints of atonement theory in the New Testament, mostly in the writings of the Apostle Paul and primarily written as metaphor and always using the language and concepts of a first century audience that they could understand based on the religious customs of their day. And those religious customs of their day were deeply embedded in the sacrificial system of the temple. In the ancient world it was customary to sacrifice animals, bulls, sheep, goats, doves. You were to raise an animal or you could purchase one at the temple. You would bring it into the temple and you'd say a prayer and then the animal would be slaughtered and its blood would be poured on the altar. And this was a symbol of your repentance for the wrongdoing that you had done, as a sign of your thanksgiving for everything good in your life, and as a petition to God for future blessings, like more kids, more rain, more crops, more victories on the battlefield. Animal sacrifice was actually not unique even to Judaism. For thousands of years, civilizations have been sacrificing to the gods in this belief that this was how you maintained a good relationship with the deities. You offer something of value, you make amends, you seek favor, you act really serious about it, and you hope for the best. But in ancient Judaism, animal sacrifices actually had to happen in the temple of Jerusalem. And the temple was where the spiritual debts that you carried were released or forgiven. And it's where in the temple you had access to the presence of God, where access to God was granted. In other words, the temple had cornered the market on forgiveness and divine presence. And animal sacrifice was the currency. But then along comes Jesus, and he starts preaching this message of radical grace. And God's forgiveness is for everyone, free of charge. Mercy is the currency now. And Jesus taught that we don't need to make animal sacrifices, that God actually really isn't very impressed with our offerings and sacrifices. Why? Because, as Jesus says, quoting the Old Testament, God wants our hearts, our souls, our whole selves. And Jesus teaches that God's presence couldn't be contained in a temple. It couldn't be confined to any building. Because in that famous passage that you may recall from John 3, the spirit, it blows where it wills. And we don't know where it comes from, or even where it's going. So imagine if you were living in the first century world and you you heard this earth-shattering news. You don't have to worry about an angry God anymore, a vindictive God, a punishing God. You don't have to appease a God by sacrifice. God's a loving God. And God is as near to you as your very breath. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew, on behalf of God, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. As the years passed, Paul and other two New Testament writers, they tried to put the meaning of the cross into words or ideas, concepts that their audiences would understand. And all they had were metaphors to explain it which doesn't that make a little bit of sense when you're talking about a symbol like the cross all you can use are metaphors the only way to explain a symbol is with symbolic language that's the nature of a symbol and so the writers would point to they would point to the cross and they would say it's sort of like this and they said it's sort of like Jesus is the sacrifice for sin but this was metaphor it was using sacrificial language that they already knew. One famous passage in Hebrews where the writer says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. We've taken this literally, but it wasn't meant to be literal. It was intended to be metaphor. Jesus or God, they never describe God's plan or Jesus' vocation as one of sacrifice. Why? Because God desires mercy, not sacrifice, says Scripture. So why would God then contradict God's self by desiring sacrifice, not mercy? That passage from Hebrews uses sacrificial language to announce that there is an end to the sacrificial system. That passage from Hebrews is subversive speech and what it says is the temple doesn't have the market on God's presence or forgiveness anymore. It is free and it's freely given to you. We know that sacrifice was just one of several metaphors to describe this. Um, there are other metaphors that the New Testament writers used. Redemption which of course is an economic metaphor. Reconciliation, a relational metaphor. Justification, a legal or courtroom metaphor. Victory, a military metaphor. And none of these metaphors on their own could completely describe what happened on the cross. They're just metaphors intended to communicate something far greater the amazing grace and love of God that we encounter in Jesus Christ. And they did so in familiar language and concepts that would relate to their audiences. For many Christians today, the metaphor of sacrifice has profound meaning. And perhaps it does for you, even if you can't quite explain it. I know many people who who are inspired and given courage and And given new life with the understanding that that God and God's blood was shed for them. I want to affirm that as your metaphor for the cross. But for a lot of Christians, the cross only means that and must always and only mean that. And this idea of sacrifice has become then the litmus test for real faith and real forgiveness and especially for going to heaven. How many times have we been told, believe that Jesus died for your sins and you will go to heaven? Ironically, friends, that very way of thinking has become the very legalistic transactional temple system that Jesus came to subvert. Now, I could be wrong, but according to my latest research, Uh, We no longer live in a culture in which people offer animal sacrifices to the gods. Uh, In this age, sprinkling ourselves with the blood of a bull or dedicating some strangled turtle doves on the altar would be really weird. In fact, it might even get you arrested. Every culture needs fresh metaphors to communicate the Jesus story in its own time and place. And for many, it would be inconceivable and inexcusable for a loving parent to will and orchestrate the execution of their child for some holy purpose. And for others, it would be irrational to conceive of an all-powerful God who would choose to sacrifice a human life instead of acting all-powerfully to accomplish a greater good by far less violent means. And for a lot of people, it just seems superstitious to believe that human sacrifice would be necessary to appease a truly loving God who has already said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We need new metaphors. And maybe the appropriate metaphor for our time is mercy, not sacrifice, but mercy. Mercy is another word for compassion. And compassion is the word that we use to describe what it's like when we truly step into the shoes of another person who is hurting or suffering and we dare to feel what they feel. And mercy is in such short supply these days. The world can feel pretty merciless a lot of the time. And we can feel very alone much of the time. Mercy. I told the story before here about a girl who called me one night. She was 10 years old, a ward of the state. Her mother had recently died in a car accident, and she had no extended family who could take her in. And she was moving from home to home in foster care, during which time she was also undergoing radiation therapy to treat a tumor that was growing behind her left eye and impairing her vision. This little girl had endured more in 10 years of life than most of us have endured or will endure in a lifetime. And she called me after her new foster family had taken her to church. It was her first time in church. And for the first time she heard the story of Jesus, that he was crucified and how he prayed in the garden, Lord, let this cup of suffering pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And it turned out that little part wasn't her favorite part of the story. And so she called me one night with a question that her foster family wasn't sure how to answer. She said, I heard about how Jesus died and I was just wondering, did Jesus have a choice? Or did God make him do it? I, I didn't see this one coming from a 10-year-old. I mean, at the time, my 10-year-old was watching SpongeBob SquarePants. I repeated the question, uh, did Jesus have a choice? And we would acknowledge, repeating the question as a pastor, that's a technique we use to buy a little time when we can't come up with a good answer. Did Jesus have a choice? She said, yeah. Could Jesus have said no? And I just went on a limb. I said, I... I believe Jesus did have a choice. I I understand that God would never make anyone do anything they wouldn't want to do because God gives everyone choices. So yeah, I I think Jesus could have said no. But he said yes. I expected a follow-up like why or what if or how come, but she simply said, that's what I thought. Anything else? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Goodbye. This little girl knew a thing or two about suffering. And she had heard the story of Jesus' suffering, and it sounded strangely familiar, I think, to her own story. and I think all she really wanted was to know that she wasn't alone in her suffering, that Jesus, in choosing not to run from his suffering, Chose to stay in hers. Why the cross? Mercy is just a metaphor, but I think it's a good one for our time. Compassion, solidarity, a daring to stand with us in the world's suffering. And so at the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he sums up the merciful life and the call for every Christian so poetically and beautifully. Let each of you not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others, and let the same mind be in you that was in Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." obedience. What was Jesus obedient to? It wasn't the cross. It wasn't uh, death. Jesus was obedient to the merciful life, which said, I will not look to my own interest but to the interests of others, and I will empty myself and pour out divine love even unto death. And in this way, the cross reminds us that sometimes love Hurts as much as it heals. And sometimes healing cannot happen without our hurting. And sometimes healing leads inevitably to our hurting. And sometimes it's our hurting that brings others healing. Isn't this why we cry when a friend of ours might mourn? Isn't it why our heart aches when? a friend's heart is broken? Isn't it why we show up on someone's doorstep with a casserole and we say, you're not alone in this? Why the cross? It's to know that Jesus suffers with us and to remind ourselves that to have the mind of Christ means to suffer with others. I'll close with this. In the Middle Ages, the church had this extraordinary thing they did. They placed statues of the martyrs in front of all the cathedrals so that whenever you would go to church to worship, you had to pass by all these graphic depictions of the suffering martyrs with their fatal wounds and spears impaled in them and severed limbs and the stare of suffering and death. It was, I mean, I've gone through a lot of modern-day church growth handbooks, and I haven't seen that particular strategy. You know, some churches today won't even display a cross in their sanctuaries because they are afraid of spooking the so-called seekers that they so desperately court. But the message of the medieval church had it right. When you follow Christ, you become willing to pour out your spirit. Even to the point of death. Why the cross? Well, anybody can worship the cross. Anybody. But Jesus calls us to take one up and follow. Our takeaways for today, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus was obedient to mercy. And sometimes it's our hurting.